0: Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here, and we are so excited that you've come this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a series <clears throat> on the first 12 chapters of Genesis, and today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles uh, and you turn to Genesis chapter 6, uh, also we're, I'm also going to be preaching uh, a little bit on 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, I know that there's nothing worse than when the pastor says that he's going to be preaching on a book of the Bible, you're not sure where it is. And uh, so uh, that'll give you some time to find 1 Peter chapter 3 as well. Please feel free to look in the index of your Bible to find it. Nothing worse than you reading Hebrews and pretending that it's 1 Peter. And um, uh, don't don't worry about it. It's more important that you are following along with God's Word, uh, and uh, it'll give you an extra time to find it. Uh, but 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, but right now I'm going to read from Genesis, that's the first book in your Bible, chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humanity was great in the earth, and that every intention of the faults of our hearts was only evil continually. Oh, man, that, that's, that's not a good way to start off, is it? And the Lord regretted that he had made humanity on the earth. Ah, The Lord regretted. And it grieved God to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out humanity whom I have created from the face of the land, humans and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then I want to skip down uh, to verse 17. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. May God add his wisdom. To this, the reading of His holy and perfect Word. Amen. Martin Luther, who is one of the principal founders of the Protestant Reformation, said that when we read the Bible, the Old Testament included, we need to be looking for Jesus. That is, is that Jesus is in the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 400 years later, one of the founders of the Christian church movement, of which this congregation is a a product of, a guy named Alexander Campbell, he wrote, we must studiously read the Old Testament before we can accurately understand the New Testament. Now today, I read to you just a very small portion of the five chapters in Genesis that deal with Noah and the flood. That's Genesis uh, chapter 6, let's see, goes uh, about to 6 to 10, so four chapters. As a matter of fact, there are more chapters in Genesis that talk about the flood than talk about creation itself. Now, everything in this story about the flood is important. And the first chapters that deal with the flood really require a, a deep... Uh, devoted study on all of us, but we just simply don't have the time to do that in the time that we've been given this morning. So, what I'd like to do with you this morning is I'd like to focus more on what the New Testament says about the flood. So, if you have found it in First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen to twenty-two, if you're taking notes, you can write that down so that you can go back and look at it a little bit later this week or this afternoon. Because what I want to do is I want to focus with you on the big picture of the flood and how the New Testament sees this as one of the foreshadowing events of the Christian practice of baptism. Now, whether you're somebody who is here this morning thinking about it, you've never been baptized and you're wondering what all this baptism thing is, or if you're somebody who has been baptized for decades, it's my hope that as we go through this text together that we all will be listening for God's word that we'll hear the voice of God as we read God's written word. So if you found 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that is Christ, for the unrighteous, that's me and you, that he might bring us to God, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter here is more than likely writing this letter to Christians who are in Rome. And most scholars say that he is also in Rome when this letter is being written. Uh, Folks date this letter to somewhere around the year 62 or 63 A.D. So it's not been that long since Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended. It's also before the official campaign of the Roman Empire which persecuted Christians. We've all heard the stories of how Christians were persecuted how they were fed to lions, how they were forced to fight the gladiators, how they were martyred, they were killed in the most gruesome of ways. And although some of the other New Testament books talk about suffering in the midst of that kind of persecution, 1 Peter is writing before all that has started yet. What's going on here with the Christians, predominantly in in Rome at this point, is, is that Christians are enduring verbal abuse. That is, is that folks are are making fun of them, they're deriding them. Uh, it, these are just everyday people who, who uh, think that following Jesus Christ is ridiculous, that this, this religion, this faith that has been founded on a resurrected Christ is, is foolhardy. And, and not only is it the, the kind of, of, of making fun that's occurring in neighborhoods, at work, but families are disowning their daughters. Uh, families are disowning their sons. Uh, Folks are losing their jobs. They're, They're not allowed to do business in the marketplace. They are being pushed out of regular society. Their voice, their work, their perspective is no longer welcomed in the everyday world of the city of Rome. This probably isn't all that different than what is beginning to happen to Christians in our world today, particularly in Western civilizations. And so if you're the kind of person who struggles sometimes at work to to talk about your faith because you're afraid that people will make fun of you, or if you're the kind of person who tries to keep silent at family gatherings because your perspective about certain issues that are informed by your faith uh, are not welcomed and not received well, then this letter that Peter writes is the letter for you. It's the letter for you to read and to hear the encouragement of God's Holy Spirit. Now the portion of the letter which I read to you today, Peter begins this portion of the letter with the same kind of summaries that we see in lots of the other letters of the New Testament. That is is that most of the writers, when they begin to write their letters, they take a, a line or two or maybe even a chapter, and they summarize the work of Jesus Christ what it was that Jesus has done for us, why it's important, why it's significant. And so Peter says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then Peter does something very interesting, and is the point of our message today as we continue in this series in Genesis. He equates... The work that Christ has done, and the work that Christ does in our lives, specifically through baptism, with the story of Noah and the flood. It's a story that everyone knows, and in this story, we are given the context, we are given the specifics of the gift that each of us has received from God, and that is our salvation. Now, there's a lot to unpack here that we only have a short time to do it, but we're going to try to do this. But before we unpack it, it's important for me to share with you a couple of things. First of all, Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a logical faith. It makes sense. There are uh, two main things that I think every human being needs to do at some point in their life, and I pray that all of you have done it. The first is, does God exist? You might uh, uh, put it this way. When I look around and I see the world and I see the universe, I see the complexity of the created world, of plants and animals, of the human being. Is this seriously just something that came by chance? Or is this something that must have had a creator, a designer, an intelligent outside of ourselves who called these things into being. So That's the first thing. And it's reasonable, as we look at the complexity of the world, to dismiss the notion that all of this, that you and me, just happened to come to pass by chance. Now, all that does is that gives you a basis upon which to believe in a divine being. It does not prove to you that Jesus... Is Lord of all. It does not prove to you the truth of Christianity. Which brings us to the second question. And the second question is Do you really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? That's the two questions you have to ask yourselves. Did all this occur by chance? And did Jesus really raise from the dead? Because if Jesus really was raised from the dead, that demands a response. That has never happened before and it has never happened since. And if Jesus really conquered sin and death, then there is something specific that I must do. I must think, I must discern, I must consider. So I would even argue that given those two answers, yes, I believe that there had to be a divine creator, a designer who created all things, and yes, I do believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then it is reasonable... For me to come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible, that the Jesus of the New Testament, that Christianity is a reasonable faith. But you know there's a however coming, don't you? And here's the however. There are lots of things in the faith that we cannot explain. And Christianity actually has a word for this. Are you ready? It's a pretty word. It's actually two words. It's called sacred mystery. There are just some things that we can't explain. There are some things that don't make sense. And you're thinking, well, what are they? The Trinity. Y'all want to take a stab at that? I mean, three in one, one in three? How about the nature of salvation? That is, is, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to come into relationship with God? What is it that Jesus actually did on the cross? And how does that act give to us a benefit? What exactly happens at baptism? What actually happens when we are lowered into the waters of baptism and raised again? Now, the New Testament tries to explain these mysteries. It tries to give us a basis for these mysteries. And we can look at the pages of the New Testament, and we can see how the writers of the New Testament seek to teach us about what it means to say that there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that those three are one and that they uh, uh, are the true expression of the fullness of God. We can look at the New Testament and we can see <coughs> what, what it was that Jesus actually did on the cross, and, and it approaches these, these sacred mysteries from various perspectives. So the New Testament talks about Jesus on the cross as being a revelatory love, that we, that, that, that God's love is revealed through Jesus' willing sacrifice on the cross. Other parts of the New Testament, New Testament talk about it as substitutionary atonement. That is, is that we are the ones who deserve death, but Jesus stepped into our place and bore the penalty that was rightfully ours. And the New Testament also, and we could do a whole series just on those two, and the New Testament also tries to look at this act of baptism from various perspectives. And as a matter of fact, the New Testament uses no less, you can argue more, but you can't argue less, no less than seven different perspectives about baptism. The New Testament talks about the baptism of Moses, referring to the Jews going through the Red Sea. It talks about the baptism of John, which Pastor Joe alluded to earlier when he was uh, greeting you in this worship service talks about the baptism of fire. And here it gets even really complicated because the New Testament breaks down the baptism of fire with three sub-perspectives. So you know, there's a Roman numeral three here, and then there's A, B, and C. That is, is that baptism of fire can refer to eternal torment. It can refer to trials and testing. It can refer to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The fourth perspective of baptism is the baptism of Jesus. The fifth, the baptism of the cross, which Jesus himself talks about to his disciples. Sixth, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're very grateful for our brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal and charismatic churches who have helped us unpack what the New Testament means when it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And finally, believer's baptism. That's the seventh expression. That's the seventh perspective. Believer's baptism. That is specifically the baptism of a new believer. Like those who will be baptized, perhaps even some of you, on August 4th. Or the baptism that many of us have already received. Now here's the important part. The New Testament explains this kind of baptism, the believer's baptism, with two other distinct perspectives underneath of it. Now the first... Is that in baptism, our sins are washed away? Probably all of you have heard that. This comes straight from the New Testament. I've not interpreted it, I've not changed it. You don't need to be a theologian and in some ivory tower university. It's right there in the same Bible that you're holding in your laps that I have up here. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, a guy named Ananias is called by the Holy Spirit. "...to go and lead a fellow named Saul who has just begun to be converted in the basics of the Christian faith." Now, you might say to yourself, that's Saul. That sounds familiar. Because Saul's name is changed to Paul. And Paul is the author of a great deal of the New Testament that you're holding in your hands today. And after Paul has this experience on his way to the city of Damascus... He's blinded by the light of Christ. And he goes and he sits under Ananias. And for three days, he sits in blindness and darkness. And on the third day, the Bible tells us uh, that that, uh, scales fell from his eyes. And when Ananias sees that these scales fell from Saul's eyes, who will be named Paul here soon, he says to Paul, What prevents you now from being baptized? Go get baptized that your sins will be washed away. (laughs) I remember in my last church, which was that I served, was on the banks of the Ohio River, and a young girl came up to me and she was asking about baptism. And she said, So what really happens at baptism? And I said, Well, it's when our sins are washed away. And she looked at me and she, with this, eyes huge, and she says, what do you mean they're washed away? I, she said, where do they go? And I said, well, they're, they're washed away in the baptistry and they go down the drain and out into the Ohio River. She was horrified. She said, pastor, what if somebody swim in the river and my sins get on them? Well, needless to say, we needed to wait a few more years before we baptized her. And I was probably foolish in using that example with her. But the second image of baptism that the New Testament uses is the one that's found right here in 1 Peter. And it's not only found here in 1 Peter, it's found also in some of the writings of Paul. It's just that Peter relates this perspective with the story of the flood. What Peter is teaching us here is, is like the flood, you see, in the flood there were people who were evil. Genesis says they were Wicked. And God says that he is going to destroy that wickedness by the flood. The flood was the death of those who refused to live into the image of God. Now if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we began this series, we talked about that. That was the the, the lesson on creation, that we've been created in what? The image of God. And these are people who rejected being created in the image of God. Now, just like in the flood, Noah and his family were saved by the same exact waters that served as the final judgment of the wicked. That's what Peter is saying here. Just as the waters saved Noah, they function in the same way for the Christians to whom Peter is writing here. We, the church, we don't really use this image a whole lot. It's not an image that we like to discuss or talk about. This whole idea of the, of the wicked being put to death, of, of the righteous being raised again out of the grave. These aren't the kind of things that, 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 that make for good explanation and, and discussion, especially with those who have no experience with Scripture or, or, or the Bible. But, brothers and sisters, that understanding of baptism is perfectly biblical. When we are baptized, our old self, The self that was rebellious. The self that rejected the idea that we've been made in the image of God. The self that wants to make our own hearts the gods of our life. The self that says we can decide what is best for us. The self that says to our Heavenly Father, I want no part of you. That self, that rebellious being is plunged into a watery grave. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. You can go back and read it as well a little bit later in the week or this afternoon. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. I like that phrase. Actually, uh, we actually translate that phrase wrong. That's not what Paul really said in the original language, by no means. It's sort of a, a Greek expletive, if you will. It, it, what it The best way to be translated would be... We probably shouldn't do that here. <laughs> but by no means. No! Paul goes on, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus we're baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that paul says just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in the newness of life you see in baptism we are buried with christ we are plunged beneath the waters we, jo- we are joined with Christ in his death. I don't, I don't know if you've seen this. It's, I like, this is what I like to do. When I baptize somebody, I take them down in that grave and I wait for the waters to settle back over them. I want to make sure they're really buried. Of course, there's a look of horror and fear in the, in the face of the one being baptized, wondering if I'm going to pull them up again. And then once that water has come back and steady over them again, The Holy Spirit, working through the hands of the pastor or the Christian who's baptizing that person, begins to pull us out of that grave. The struggle of the water's resistance, the power of death trying to hold on to us, is ultimately to no avail. You you, you see, the power of Christ cannot be resisted. It cannot be overcome. And suddenly, we're pulled out of the grave. We're pulled out of the clutches of death. We're pulled out of the powers of darkness that want to hold us in their tomb. And we're raised again to new life. New life with Christ. New life in Christ. New life for Christ. We are born again. In 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Peter specifically says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God." For a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, remember that first sermon that, that I shared with you a few weeks ago? When we talked about what it, made, what it meant to be made in the image of God? Do you remember what I suggested to you? That one of, if not the principal meaning of being made in the image of God, is that we are given a conscience. A conscience. That is as the word conscience means with knowledge. That is is that we have the ability to know right from wrong. That we have the awareness of what God created us to do, to be. That we are the perfect reflection of God the Father. That's what it meant to be made in the image of God. That's what it means to be given a conscience. But because of sin that image that we were of the Father was broken. And the New Testament talks about this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writing here again. He says, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. That is, is that Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God the Father. If you want to know who God the Father is, Paul says, look At Jesus. Jesus is the perfect reflection of who God the Father is. But Paul continues this teaching. Here he does it in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. You can write that down. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, are you ready? To be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So see, the New Testament begins to make sense here. Just as Jesus is the perfect image of God the Father, we are the perfect image of God the Son, of Jesus Christ. We, like Christ, have died and been raised again. Death is defeated, and we become brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. My family has been a part of the Christian church movement since 1897, when my grandmother's uncle went to a gospel meeting on the banks of the Pocomoke River in Snow Hill, Maryland. And there he listened to an old Christian church preacher, accepted Christ, and was baptized. He became one of the founding members of the Snow Hill Christian Church. And I am the fourth generation in my family to call that church church their spiritual home. Now, that sounds really good, except for somewhere around the year of 1978, my mother decided that it was time for us to leave the Christian church, because, not for any doctrinal reasons, but they were arguing over the air conditioners. Now, I know that stuns and shocks all of you, but uh, we decided, my mother decided that that I didn't need to be raised in that context where they were arguing over the, Christian, over the air conditioner. That She didn't want me to see how mean Christians could be to each other. Well, little did she know what was awaiting me. But we began attending a little church out in the middle of a wheat field that was surrounded by chicken farms. Suffice it to say that summer worship carried with it a unique and specific odor. About a year prior to this, I'd been begging my mother that I could get baptized, but this was back in the day in the Christian church where we never baptized people until they turned 12 years old. It was the age of accountability. It's an old way of teaching that was a part of our movement that isn't as prevalent these days. But I begged and begged and begged my mother that I wanted to go forward, make my public profession of faith, and be baptized. And so finally, on January 13th, 1980, my mother finally relented, and I went forward in that little country church, white clapboard church in the middle of the wheat field, and made my public profession of faith. I was five days away from my 11th birthday. Now the preacher at that little church at the time, he knew that we were from the Christian church down the road, and he was rather skeptical of both me and my mother, and he refused to baptize me. So instead he required me to meet with him every Sunday after worship, so that I could be instructed in his or his church's understanding of the faith. Well, 10 months go by, every Sunday with him. And when he realized that he wasn't making any headway, he just decided to go ahead and baptize me. And so my baptism was on Sunday, November 9th, 1980. Now, I know for some of you that was like yesterday. But for me, that was a day in which I was more excited than I had ever been in my life. I was so excited that when I was in the baptistry waiting for the pastor to lower me in the waters, I couldn't help but smile. My body was shaking. Well, it could have been shaking because the baptistry was freezing cold. That was before baptistries had heaters, too. And as I stood there, I couldn't wait, and the pastor finally turned to me and ushered me down... And he stood with me and he said, Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, Son of the living God? Man, I almost laughed out loud as I proudly yelled out, Yes, sir, I do! And I remember being lowered in those frigid waters. And I remember being pulled up again, choking and coughing and laughing with pure joy. After I was dried off, got dressed, was back sitting with my mother, I felt brand new. I felt clean. I felt born again. I was excited to officially be a part of the church and overjoyed to be a part of the family of God. Well, after the service, there was a dear, sweet little old lady, a walking saint, a pillar of the congregation. She hobbled over to me and she peered at me over her glasses. And she said, Young man, baptisms are a serious event. It is not a place for laughter. I was devastated. I was absolutely horrified. Did my baptism really take? Was I really a Christian? Was God mad at me too for being a Christian, for laughing? My mother looked at me after she walked away and she said, you just ignore that lady. (laughs) She said, I was fine. And with her eyes filled with tears, she said, I'm proud of you. Well, a few months later, the preacher of the Christian church finally resigned. I guess they'd settled the air conditioner problem things began to settle down so we returned but I couldn't stop thinking about what that little old lady had said to me and when we went forward at Snow Hill Christian Church, my mother transferring her membership back in and I transferring in having already been baptized I asked the preacher if I needed to be baptized again and he said no, no we're baptized just once I told him, I said but hear what this little old lady said to me and he said son Well-meaning Christians can sometimes be mean without knowing it. That baptism wasn't something I did. It was something that the Holy Spirit does. That my baptism was valid and God loved me. Now this was back in the day when churches were required to send letters of transfer. And do you know that little country church in the middle of that wheat field refused to send a letter to Snow Hill Christian Church because we weren't a part of their association our pastor said, well, hon, well, son, we'll just pretend they sent a letter. Welcome home, my brother in Christ. Three years later, I was elected a deacon. Twelve years after that, I was ordained to the office of teaching elder and minister of the gospel. And do you know what? That little white clapboard church in the middle of the wheat field all came to my ordination. I guess that they thought I was still their brother in Christ. And you know what? They were exactly right. But not because my name was written on their membership roll, but because I had been lowered into the watery grave and raised again to new life. We were brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? I'm glad they came to my ordination because sometimes Christians can be mean to each other. And sometimes, they can bless each other beyond words. Merciful God, I pray that if there's someone in this room today trying to hear a word from you, that without a doubt in their hearts, without a doubt in their minds, they'll make the decision to be baptized on August 4th that they'll be lowered into a watery grave with Christ and pulled out by the arms of the Holy Spirit to new life, raised again with Him. And Lord, if there's folks here today who are trying to discern Your work and Your will for their lives, who've already been baptized, speak to them, remind them that because of what Jesus has done, they're Your son, Your daughter. And with them, you're well pleased because of Jesus. In His name we pray.